This week we're reading Parshat Vayishlach, and uh, perhaps the central character in Parshat Vayishlach, outside of Yaakov, is Esav. Um, the very end of Parshat Vayishlach, very long chapter which deals with Todot Esav, which of course evokes the response of who cares. Uh, almost all uh, studies of Parshat Vayishlach focus on anything but the end. Uh, Vayishlach starts out with Yaakov's anticipated reunion with Esav, uh, and indeed, the Haftarah of Parshat Vayishlach is the Haftarah, which is the book of Avadya, all 21 verses, which is focused on Nevoah against Esav, or Edom. Uh, so Esav really is kind of a, the, the chief secondary character here. And it all revolves around a passage that takes place in the middle of the Parsha, which is the reunion between Yaakov and Esav. After all, the whole first section of the Parsha is devoted to Yaakov's um, uh, preparation for that reunion. His fear, his prayer, his dividing the camp, his sending the gift, his wrestling match in the middle of the night, which seems to be, at least according to many of uh, a preface or a prelude sort of to his meeting with Esav. And then finally it culminates with that actual meeting, that reunion with Esav, um, which goes, shall we say, much better than feared, uh, after which we have the story of Dina and Shrem. We've dealt with that in previous years. And uh, and then sort of the tragedies along the road between Shrem and ultimately getting to Hebron to his father, uh, including, of course, the death of Rachel with the birth of Benjamin and the story of Ruvain and Bilhah. But I want to take a look at that reunion because we're going to see a very um, unusual Except it's not unusual because we have seen it before, but very uh, thought-provoking, Masoretic device that's used. Uh, and one of the words uh, in this in this story, and we're going to talk about it, where it comes from, what it's about, and more, more significantly, how we should read the text based on that marking. At the beginning of chapter 33, this is after Yaakov in the morning recovers from or... Uh, successfully escapes from his wrestling match with what proves to be an angelic being. Source 1. So as promised, Yaakov sees Esav coming with 400 men, which Yaakov interpreted as being an army, and he was afraid of what was going to happen, and he prepared in, in kind. So he pushed the kids, or divided the kids, uh, to their mothers. So who's in the front of the entourage is and behind them is Leah and her kids and behind them, the last ones are Rachel and Yosef. Okay? And Yaakov then walks in front of that whole group before he actually encounters Esav, but in full view of Esav, he bows, he prostrates himself seven times. There's clearly something ceremonial here, and he is coming as a servant before the master, and that's his approach. Now, Vayarot's Esav Likrato. We'll stop at that point. Esav runs to his, in his direction. Now, if you're Yaakov and you're bowing on the ground and Esav's running at you, you could be thinking a lot of things. But before we can get much further, and what does Esav do? Esav embraces him. Now, we should not be 
uh, dulled to the connection between Vayechadkehu and Vayeavek Ishimo. Rashi, indeed, and some of the other Rishonim, attached the word Vayeavek, which is what the man wrestled with Yaakov, as being related to the word Vayechavek. This is the way the people who wrestle, they, they hug each other, they hold each other. So here, Esav comes and he embraces Yaakov. But this doesn't seem to be what Yaakov expected. But here's the part I want to focus on. He, Dainu Esav, falls on his neck, Dainu Yaakov's neck, and he kisses him and they cry. All right? And now, clearly, this reunion is passing peacefully, and it's going very well, and it's all beautiful. And and so Esav now looks up, and he sees the women, he sees the children, he sees this whole camp, and he says, "What? What? why are you bringing all of these? Meaning he's referring, evidently, according to somebody showing him to the gift that's coming. These are all my children that God granted me, Okay, so that's what he's got. All right. Now, if you look in a Sefer Torah, you will see that the word Vayishakehu has some marks on it. As a matter of fact, if you look here at the... Um, um, ba-ba-bum, here at the Leningrad Codex, which we have on the last page of this, you will see that in the bottom left-hand column, you have Vayishakehu. Does everybody see it? There at the bottom on the left side, third line from the bottom. And on the top of Vayishakehu, there are dots. Now, these dots are Masoretic notes, meaning that they are notes put in by the Balea Masorah, which halachically have to be in a Sefer Torah. So what I'm showing you here is not the way it looks in a Sefer Torah. On the top of Vayishakehu, there would be dots. And indeed, the note, the Masoretic note that's here in the Leningrad Codex, points out on the side that there are 10 different places in Torah where there are Masoretic notes. I'll show you a couple of the other ones. Some of them are quite famous. Uh, and every one of them has some sort of a drasha associated with why the notes are there. But let's take a look at how some of the chief sources deal with it. In Masechet Avot Rabbi Natan, which is a Amoraic Midrashic work, we have the following statement. Esen Nikudot Batorah Eloheinu. There are ten places where the Masorah demands that we put dots on some or all of the letters, some or most of the letters, on top of a word. And they are Yishpot Adonai Beni Uvanecha, which is when Sarah accuses Avram of being unfair when it comes to the whole Hagar thing. And it says, Beinecha, there's a dot over the Yod, and there's a drush on it. All right? Uh, when the visitors come to the tent on the Aleph and the Yod and the Vav of Elav, meaning all the letters except for the Lamed, there's a dot. Right? Means, and there's a drasha there that they really knew where she was and she was asking, or famously, when Lot and his daughters have that terrible, disgusting encounter in the cave, it says, and the first daughter lay with him, because he was drunk, he did not know about her lying with him or about her getting up. Nakud alvav shebekuma. On the word uvekuma, when she rose up, there actually is a, a dot over the vav, teaching, and Rashi quotes this, that he did actually realize when she got up what had happened, which of course holds him that much more guilty for not being careful about drinking on the second day and ending up fathering Amon. 
Kayotsebo. Which means, by the way, the position of Avot to Rabbi Natan is that every one of these markings is there to tell you that there is a drasha that is so built into the pasuk that it has to be marked. Notice that, and there's a drasha. Kayotsebo. And notice in this text, they put a little gershaim there on the word that has the dots. Kulonakud, which means the entire word vayishakehu. Not some of the letters or one of the letters, all the letters of Ishakehu have Nikudot. You already saw that. Melamed Shilo Nishko Be'emet. So, what's the drasha? That Esav kissed Yaakov, but it wasn't really heartfelt. That's one position. Shimon ben Elazar Omer Nishikazu Shalemet. He says the opposite. This one is marked because this is the only kiss, perhaps the only kiss in all of Tanakh, that's a legitimate, not self serving, Legitimate kiss of love and of friendship. Maybe in all Tanakh, maybe in Chumash. In any case, this is that Anishikas Shalomet, which means we have two opposite positions on interpreting what this, what this uh, dot, what these dots mean. Does it mean that the kiss was the most amazing kiss, or was it really a fake kiss? How we should interpret it. So, by the way, that leaves us a little bit out in the cold because we have two opposite positions. We don't know which one to take. But the question is, is that really the only way to interpret these dots? The Sifri in Bamidbar, is famous, uh, talks about the dot over the hay in Derech Rechokah, which we're going to look at later. And then it quotes our piece, but it has a slightly more intense take. A very famous drasha. Kayotze bo vayishakehu, nakud alav, shalon neshako b'chol libo. Same as we just saw. He didn't kiss him wholeheartedly. Shimon Yochai Omer, now we saw earlier Shimon Elazar say, well, this is a real kiss, he really meant it. Here it's from Shimon Yochai, and he says halacha, but the proper girsa here actually is halo yadua, she'esav some liyakov, that Esav really hates Yaakov. Elan nehefchub rachamav v'yotah sha'ah v'nishakob v'cholibo. Meaning, normally you'd be right that Esav really has inbred hatred for Yaakov, but at this point, he was moved by everything that happened, and he was filled with compassion, and he kissed him wholeheartedly. Okay, two, again, opposite takes on what to do with this by Yishakehu. Um, in Breshit Rabbah, you have the same, uh, the same thing, but we have a little bit more information about what to do with these Masoretic dots. Take a look here in Source 4. I'm Rabbi Shimon Elazar. Shimon Elazar, remember, in the earlier, in Avotor Renatan, was the one who said it was a legitimate kiss. Here's here's his rule. Every time that you find more undotted letters than dotted letters, then that means you look at the letters that are undotted, meaning there's more of them, and you darshan as if the dotted letter has been removed. Let me give you an example of that. Take a look at the example in Source 2 on the second line. And now, if you get rid of the Lamed, what you have is, the letters that have the dots over there. And it actually makes sense independently. right? And so that's his, his rule. And now, if there's more dotted letters than undotted letters, like we just saw, then you darshan the dotted letters. It's as if to say, when you have some letters dotted and some not, 
whichever there's more of, you you keep, and whichever there's less of, you pretend they're not there, as if you delete them from the text, and you darshan it that way. Kan lo katev kudav, Here, in the case of Yishakehu, it's all, there's nothing in darshan, because every letter is covered, which means the letter, the word is the same the way the word was. So Rabbi Shimon Alazar says, again, like we saw Rabbi Shimon Yuchai, maybe it's the same Rabbi Shimon, meaning maybe the two traditions as to which Rabbi Shimon said it, that the kiss was wholehearted and felt. Amarla Rabbi Yana, so Rabbi Yana turns to Rabbi Shimon Alazar and says, then what's the point of having dots at all? You know, it's your position, which is that whenever you have dots on the letters, whichever there's more of, you darshan the word as if that's all that's there, and you delete the minority, the dotted or undotted, then what's the point of ever having a word that's all dotted? You're not changing anything. And this leads to one of the famous midrashim that little kids love, which is that Esav did not come to kiss him, but rather to bite him. Linashko and linashko is a change of one letter, the nashcho, in other words, we're darshaning the whole word, but read the word a little differently. And Yaakov's neck at that point became uh, marble, and so therefore Esau broke some teeth on it. Just kidding, but that Esau wasn't able to bite him. So why did they weep? Yaakov is weeping because he's been spared. His neck hasn't been cut. And he's weeping because his teeth broke on his neck. In Shirashirim, your neck, the man says to the to his beautiful girlfriend, your neck is like a marble tower or turret. Oh, that's a reference to Yaakov's neck that became marble in that Midrash. Okay. However, when we look into uh, this other discussion in Avot uh, Rabinatan, right, uh, which we saw the beginning of. But I want to show you the rest of it because you're going to see another approach to understanding these dots. Up until now, what's the approach that we've seen? Is the dots mark that there's something very unique about this word, special about this word, and the word should be read um, liberally, meaning as meaning something else. When there's dots on some of the letters, what we do is we remove the letters. We don't really remove them, but for our purposes, we ignore the letters that are the minority. And we read the word as if whatever the majority, dotted or undotted, is there. And that gives us a whole other um, perspective on the story. In this case, when all the words are dotted, what we read is that the entire word should be read alternatively, and not vayishakehu, but vayinashkehu. Right? And and then the whole story of his of his neck going that way. However, we find a whole different approach here. And in this passage that we saw part of earlier, it lists all of the ten places in Torah when you have dots, sometimes one dot, sometimes two, and sometimes a whole word, and sometimes eleven dots in a row, several words. Right? Look at the line right above the yellow. So lanu ulevanenu, all those letters. Have dots on them. Lakud alanu ulavanenu and ayin, right? The next word is adolam. So the ayin of adolam is is topped. Why is it there? Elakach amar Ezra. So first of all, the midrash here is crediting Ezra Sofer with the one who put the dots there. 
Now watch this, because this is a will sound revolutionary, but this is straight out of Avot Natan. It also shows up in Midrash Pamid Barab and several other places. If Eliyahu comes and says, why did you put that word in there? So I'll tell him, that's why I put dots, so I'll erase it. But if on the other end he says that those words should be in there, why do you put dots? I'll erase the dots. In other words, the way that the Midrash here is dealing with dotted words in the Torah is that these are words that we're not sure if they actually should be there. And therefore the dots are there as kind of like a question mark, almost like a parenthesis. And therefore, Ezra says, if Eliyahu comes along and says, why did you put that word there? Say, oh, that's why I put dots, and I'll erase the word. If on the other hand, he says, why did you put dots there? You wrote, you wrote the word correctly, I'll erase the dots, and the word will remain. And that's an approach taken regarding all of the dotted letters. I'll show you one example here. It's a little faint. It's from the Damascus Codex from the, the 12th century, I think. Um, but if you take a look here in, um, in on the left side of the screen... Uh, you'll see that in the middle of the page, Asher Pakdu Moshe V'Aharon. Asher, sorry, Asher Pakad Moshe V'Aharon Al-Pi This is in Bamid Bar Gimel. All of the count of the Levim that Moshe and Aharon counted. The word V'Aharon has dots on it. So the Midrash in Bamid Bar Rabbah says, why are there dots? Because, as I said, Eliyahu will come and tell me, why did you put the name Aaron in there? I'll say, that's why I put dots, I'll erase Aaron. If on the other hand, he said, Aaron belongs there, I'll erase the dots. So the dots are a symbol, a, a marker, saying that we're really not sure if this word should be in the Torah, or in the text, it happens later in Tanakh, um, and, uh, and therefore, um, perhaps it should be erased. Which would mean, by the way, if we go back to our pasuk, and we follow that advice and say that maybe it should be deleted. How would the Pasuk read? In other words, Esav ran and, and embraced him. He fell on his neck and they cried. And Vayishakehu then becomes an extra word that perhaps doesn't need to be there. Now, let's take a look at that particular phrase about crying on somebody's neck. And this is actually going to open up a whole different understanding about Asab. So I want to give it a, a, uh, a preface, which is something we've talked about numerous times, but needs to be restressed. We encounter characters in Tanakh with a lot of blinders. We have blinders because ever since we were little kids, we were brought up to look at certain characters in a certain light. The heroes in a glowing light, and people that at the end of the story turn out to be negative characters, rejected characters, in some case villainous characters, are painted all evil. And so therefore we interpret everything that Lavan does, everything that Bilam does, everything that Haman certainly does. Haman may be an exception to this, he may really from the beginning be evil, but Lavan isn't. Bilam doesn't seem to be. Bilam would have a big problem. How could somebody who's inherently evil from the get-go be a Navi? Very difficult. Um, and you, you're wondering, how could I say Navi? Well, after all, the Midrash and the Sifri, at the end of the Torah, in Moshe's eulogy, when it says, Velo kam Navi od Israel, 
the Midrash says, yes, be Israel. There were never, never a Jewish Navi like Moshe, but among the Goyim there was, and that was Bilam. So Bilam is regarded as a Navi, and nonetheless he's terrible. So the question is, was he always terrible? And is he as terrible as we think he is? That's something that is asked to do with Parshanut. A good example of that is Esav. Esav of Babi Rashid is not Esav of Bami Baran's Varim in Adom. Esav of Humash is not Esav of Yirmiyahu and Ovadia. And Esav of Ovadia and Yirmiyahu is not even the Esav of Midrash Bereshit Rabbah and of Echa Rabbah and other places where he shows up prominently. And in Drashot given ever since then, where Esav becomes in the in the era of the Roman centurions in Breshit Rabbah, Esav becomes essentially a centurion who's raping and pillaging and murdering left and right. It's not the Esav of Breshit. I'm not saying Esav Breshit's a great guy. I don't want to give him shlishi. But nonetheless, he is not nearly as despicable. Now, the reason I'm mentioning that is because in this reunion, Esav acts passion, compassionate and passionately with his brother, and positive, and they exchange, give, no, the gift is too great, I don't need anything, no, please take it, let's go together, it's all very fun, very very friendly, shall we say, and all very pleasant, right? And Yaakov is the one who kind of extricates himself from continuing the relationship. So how are we to regard this particular scene, given the Vishakehu and the dots? So let's for a minute pretend the word Vishakehu is not there, and we will see that this scene of falling on somebody's shoulders and weeping shows up in only three places in Tanakh, and all three of them in Breshit. It doesn't happen after Breshit. And the next one after ours is when Yosef finally reveals himself to his brothers. He does not embrace the rest of his brothers the same way, but he does. He falls on Binyamin, his brother, on Binyamin's neck and weeps, and Binyamin returns the favor. And not long afterwards, when Yaakov comes down, very famous scene, the Machloka Rishonim about how to re- resolve the, un, uh, the uh, undefined pronoun, so Yosef comes and meets Yaakov in the delta, shall we say, on the way up. He falls on his neck, and he weeps a lot on his neck. Now, who's falling on whose neck and who's weeping? Is it Yaakov falling on Yosef's neck and weeping? Or Yosef falling on Yaakov's neck and weeping? Okay. But one of them is weeping on the other person's neck. I think the more favorable read here is that Yaakov is falling on Yosef's neck and weeping. And we'll see why. Because later on, when Yaakov is near his deathbed and he's giving brachot to Menashe and Ephraim, he introduces it by saying, I didn't even hope to ever see you again. And now I see your kids. Oh, great bracha, beautiful. What is going on and what is this idiom of falling on the neck and weeping? What's that about? So if we look at the, the two cases that we have here, which are really three, Benjamin weeping on Yosef's neck, Yosef weeping on Benjamin's neck, and Yaakov weeping on Yosef's neck, Finally, they all have something in common. They are all circumstances where the person doing the weeping thought that the person whose neck they're weeping on was dead. Thought it was dead? Let's think about it this way. Yaakov was convinced that Yosef was dead. 
And for all these years, he's been mourning for him. That's explicit in the text. Binyamin had every reason to think that Yosef was dead as well. Binyamin is at home, and until this reunion happens, where Yosef reveals himself, they all thought he was dead. But Binyamin had that very close tie to Yosef, and Binyamin, of course, is not involved in any way in what happened to him. And Yosef perhaps may have been concerned, because he kept asking about Binyamin, he may have been concerned that Binyamin was dead because his thought was, look what they did to me as a Ben Rachel, they might have done the same to him. Which is what many Mefarshim take as the motivation that Yosef had to get Binyamin to come down. He wanted to make sure he was okay. and wanted to make sure he was alive. And then he, as the text tells us, he withheld, he, he, he held back his emotions, uh, he restrained his emotions until this moment that overflowed when he finally was able to reveal himself to Binyamin. Why the neck? Why would the text talk about Vayevk al-Tsavarav, Bacha al-Tsavarav, weeping on his neck? It's not enough to say that he falls on his neck. Why is he weeping on his neck? So I think the answer may lie in a curious passage in Sefer Yoshua. In Yoshua Yod, when the war against the southern coalition of the five kings, Yerushalayim, etc., Hebron, Tvir, uh, um, those uh, kings are defeated, and the famous Shemesh Begivondom scene, Yoshua chases them, and they all run into a cave in Makeda. And then Yoshua has them, after the war is over and they've defeated everybody, he, as always happens in the Yoshua Wars, there's a trophy killing with the kings. Yoshua has the kings brought out. And now watch what happens here in Pasuk Haftalit. So the soldiers bring out the five kings from the cave. He brings them out to Yoshua. He calls the army. He tells the officers who went with him, Kirvu, come close. Put your legs on these kings' necks. So they do that. So what does Yeshua say about the symbolism of this act? Don't be afraid. That's the phrase during Yeshua. Be strong and be of courage. What you're doing right now is what God's going to do to all of your enemies. In other words, putting your foot on their neck is a sign of ultimate victory, of absolute victory, of unquestionable victory. And of course, why the neck? Because the neck is life. Okay, so now we roll back and say, here's somebody who I thought was dead. I fall on his neck and I weep. But more than that, I may feel some guilt towards the fact that he's dead. I may have inadvertently been complicit in getting him killed. And the most egregious example of that, of course, is Yaakov who realizes he sent Yosef to go see his brothers for a ridiculous, empty mission, and Yosef never came back. And he may be feeling tremendous guilt over that the whole time. He feels tremendous guilt when he finally has to send Binyamin down. That's clear in the text. Yosef may have also felt a certain amount of guilt over the fact that he thought Binyamin was dead because perhaps he should have immediately found a way to get Binyamin out of the house. He didn't know what happened to him. And Binyamin, on the other hand, may feel a certain amount of guilt for the fact that he was, didn't participate or raised a cry to, let's go find Yosef. And so they fall on each other's neck. 
take a look here in our story, and we'll see something, again, removing the blinders about who we think Esav is, because, by the way, Yaakov was dead wrong. And sorry for the pun, but he was dead wrong. Yaakov thought the 400 men coming with Esav was an army to wipe him out. He separates the camp so somebody can escape. He prays to Hashem. He sends a huge gift to try to appease Esav. And it turns out none of it is necessary because this entourage of 400 is exactly that. It's a delegation of honor. It is not an army. And Esav is coming to appease and to embrace and to welcome back. And as we see in the end of this week's parsha, Esav then bugs out of Canaan, moves to Seir and makes room for Yaakov. Esav is absolutely uh, co- cooperative as a brother here. So what happened? Why does Esav fall on Yaakov's neck and cry? So the answer is we have to think back from Esav's perspective what this experience of seeing Yaakov actually means. Esav was living at home. Esav and Yaakov were however old they are, machloket, Right, or were they in their forties or in their sixties? But they were however old they were. Yaakov stole the bracha from him. Esav was angry, and the next thing we know is father is giving Yaakov another bracha and sending him off to a faraway country to get married. Now, is there any history of the family of that? There is. There's a history of Avram's slave going and finding mom for dad. If you're Esav. And how long was the slave gone? However long it took to get there and to come back. Esav knows that that Yitzchak sent Yaakov to go get a wife. Esav does not know that Rivka told Yaakov, go and run away from Esav and stay there until the coast is clear and I'll send for you. So what does Esav expect should happen? Yaakov should go off and find one of the wives and come back. Yaakov doesn't come back. What conclusion does Esav come to? Must be that something happened to Yaakov. And you know what? I'm somewhat responsible for that because maybe had I not married these local Chiti women or maybe um, had things not been so tense in the house, they would have sent a slave to go get a wife and bring her back. Instead, Yaakov himself had to go. So maybe I bear some of the responsibility for that. So indeed, if we read this pasuk and ignore the letter, the word that's in red because of the dots on it, as the Midrash suggests we may have to do. What we have is the first of the three cases of Vayipol Atzavarav Vayivku, find falling on his neck and crying, which we see later with Yaakov and Yosef and Yosef and Binyamin. And maybe it tells us something about where Esau's coming from, that Esau had given up on Yaakov. He thought Yaakov was dead and he was sad about it. And when he hears that, he hears that he's coming, he brings a whole entourage. And he's surprised as anything that Yaakov's bringing gifts because, are you kidding? I'm just so happy to see you. And he's so happy to see him that he falls on his neck and cries of this tearful reunion, not just of somebody you haven't seen for a long time, but somebody that you believed was dead and now are rejoicing, overly rejoicing over the fact that he is indeed alive and you fall on his place that symbolizes life. The place that if you are going to defeat him, you put your foot on it. And if you are embracing him, you put your hands on it, embracing and weeping. Um, I believe that that is, uh, that is a helpful way of our looking at this Parsha. Again, it takes us removing ourselves from what we originally believe, let's say about Esav, 
and looking at Esau with fresh eyes as somebody who's perhaps more sympathetic and uh, perhaps something of a tragic character. What I put in the, the end, you can print this out and take a look, is some of the other sources that we have, both from the Leningrad Codex, the Aleppo Codex, and a couple from the, Dem- from the Damascus Codex of uh, dotted letters in the Torah, but they're all mentioned in that Midrash that I listed above. So hopefully we get a new perspective on what this reunion is all about, and the dots on the top of the word Vayishakehu will help. Now you're going to ask, so what do the dots accomplish? Like, why is Vayishakehu a problem? So the answer, I believe, is as follows. If we just have Bachal Tzavarav, Vayipol Tzavarav Vayivku, we have the model that exists the same thing with Yosef and his father, and Yosef and Binyamin. If, on the other hand, he kisses him, then that becomes sort of a side thing which we find Yosef doing with his other brothers when he reveals himself, right? But not the same intensity. It may be that this word, being unclear if it fits in, is really asking the question, how intense is Esau's relief over seeing Yaakov? Is it as intense as Yaakov seeing Yosef overall after all of these years? Or is it really like brothers who are reuniting, who he knew he was alive the whole time, but he's very happy to see him again, and therefore it's Vayishakehu. And that's something that we could leave open, and perhaps that then devolves into the question, was the kiss a wholehearted kiss, or was it an attempt to hurt him, as the part of the Midrash says, or more to the point, is it a wholehearted kiss, or was it not a wholehearted kiss? By Shakeh, was it different than all other kisses in Tanakh? So hopefully that's given us a new perspective on understanding this phenomenon of the Masoretic Notes, but also how the impact on our Parshanut of, uh, of this particular piece.